Welcome to Finance Explained, where you'll get the top financial headlines of the week, along with an explanation of what it all means and why it matters to you. Hey everyone, I'm Megan, the Family Finance Mom, and welcome to Finance Explained. This week, I've got three major financial headlines for you. Last week, the stock market continued its September slide, plagued by continued inflation concerns with the release of August CPI up 5.3% over the last two months, 12 months, as well as the other two major headlines. First, House Democrats continue to push forward with their plans to raise taxes to support their increase in spending. And second, a major looming corporate default by one of China's largest property developers and the most indebted developer in the world, is also making investors second-guess their appetite for risk. After that, we'll take a deep dive into the just-released detailed data from the 2020 Consumer Expenditure Survey. What does it tell us about how household spending and income was actually impacted at the height of the pandemic and recession? And what can we learn from the average family budget? But first, this week's episode is brought to you by Honest History Magazine. For anyone looking for a unique and educational gift for kids this holiday season, check out Honest History. Started as a place for kids to explore the past and learn about everyday people who changed the world, the quarterly publication is as educational as it is beautiful to look at. Honest History magazines are designed for children ages 6 to 12, and each issue is dedicated to a specific place or time period. My girls have loved learning about the ancient Roman Empire, the construction of New Schwanstein, Germany, and the castle's connection to Disney. And this summer, they love learning about the history of the Olympic Games. The issues are also so well-constructed, printed on high-quality paper using eco-friendly inks and materials, that we donated ours to my children's classrooms at school after we finished with them at home. You can order any past issue or subscribe to receive a new issue quarterly at honesthistorymag.com. Use coupon code FINANCEMOM at checkout and save 10% off your purchase. Now let's talk about the three biggest financial headlines of the week. Last week, the market continued its September slide as economic data continued to show signs the economic recovery may be slowing and inflation may be more persistent than anyone had hoped. The market finished last week down 0.57% for the week, its second down week in a row, and the market is now down nearly 2% for September and more through this week so far. One of the biggest downside pressures on the market continues to be inflation concerns, and last week's release of the August Consumer Price Index did little to calm those fears. Recall that CPI is one of the measures the market follows to measure inflation. And while the Fed has continued to hold that the elevated levels of inflation we are currently experiencing are just transitory, the more months where they remain significantly above long-term inflation targets the more concerned investors become. August CPI was up 5.3% over the last year. Initial reactions were positive as that was down from the 5.4% reported in July, but still remains more than double the Fed's 2% long-run average target. 
Also, if we compare current price levels to more normal price levels based on pre-pandemic numbers on an annualized basis, we still see elevated levels of inflation at 3.4%, especially in food up 4.3% and energy prices up 5.8%, all of which significantly impact the prices we as consumers pay. Prices continue to rise most in food, energy, and durable goods like cars, largely due to increased demand paired with supply chain constraints. And major suppliers continue to indicate they see little to no alleviation in these constraints in the near term, leading investors to believe we will continue to see upward pressure on prices for the foreseeable future. The next major headline of last week weighing on the market proposed tax increases outlined by the House Ways and Means Committee. This is to increase revenues to pay for the higher spending also being proposed. The proposal includes tax increases for corporations, high-income individuals, and modification to rules relating to retirement plans. Some of the tax increases include an increase of the corporate tax rate from 21% to 26.5% for businesses with income over $5 million an increase in the top marginal individual income tax rate to 39.6% for those married filing jointly earning more than $450,000 or for single filers with income over $400,000, an increase in capital gains rate on investment income from 20% to 25% for all gains from here forward. They're basing it on the date of introduction so investors can't rush gains now to pay lower taxes. It also proposes prohibiting contributions to a Roth or traditional IRA if your retirement account balances exceed $10 million and if you are in the highest income tax bracket. It eliminates the backdoor Roth IRA strategy that's become fairly popular for those in the highest income tax bracket as well. In general, raising taxes on corporations directly reduces future company earnings. Because stocks trade based on the expectations of future company earnings, this proposal, if passed, would negatively impact trading values. Higher taxes on investment gains could also impact investor returns and change investment strategies. It is important to note that this is just a proposal at this point and has to pass both the House and the Senate to become law. The Senate faces a much larger hurdle and will be trying to pass this legislation through a process known as budget reconciliation, which would require unanimous support from all 50 Democratic senators. And so far, at least Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat from West Virginia, has said he isn't in favor of the massive spending bill or the proposed tax hikes. Stay tuned as these negotiations continue. Last but not least, Evergrande. Why are global markets so worried about a single company in China? China Evergrande is the second largest property developer in China and the most indebted property developer in the world. Founded in 1996, the company borrowed to fund its rapid expansion, covering more than 1,000 projects across nearly 300 different cities in China. The company faces debt obligations this week. Both interest payments and maturities are coming due that it can't pay. Evergrande reportedly has over $300 billion in debt obligations and less than $15 billion in cash on hand right now. Last week, the company's bonds were trading as low as $0.25 on the dollar. Some have speculated that the Chinese government would deem the company too big to fail and bail them out, 
but Chinese authorities have so far indicated the company would not be meeting its debt obligations. This has spillover effects in markets globally. Many investors, including here in the U.S., seeking higher returns in the midst of this continued low interest rate environment, have increasingly invested in emerging market stocks and bonds, like those of Evergrande. Others also worry the failure of Evergrande could spark a broader financial and economic crisis in China's banking and financial sector, a la Lehman Brothers in the U.S. in 2008. However, experts point to the fact that as a property developer, Evergrande has real physical assets, not just financial securities, backing its debt obligations. We'll continue to watch this play out over the coming weeks. Now for this week's deep dive. One of the most popular posts on Family Finance Mom is the example of a family budget based on the 2018 consumer expenditure data released annually by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. This month, the BLS released the detailed data for 2020, giving us a clear look at just how 2020, with the pandemic, lockdowns, and recession, impacted the average family budget, for better and for worse. I'll cover some of the highlights, breakdowns by household type, educational attainment, income level, and race, as well as a few interesting data points that stood out from this unique year. It should come as no surprise to anyone that the pandemic had a massive impact on the economy and the average family budget in 2020. This detailed data gives us insights into how household incomes were impacted, as well as how consumer expenditures and family budgets changed too and some of the findings might just surprise you. First, incomes didn't actually fall, but spending did. The 2020 recession looked a little different than most. Typically, during a recession, consumers pull back on spending, which leads to producers cutting employment, incomes falling, and leads to consumers pulling back on spending even more. This time, an abrupt shock to the economy, pandemic lockdowns, drove a very rapid change in consumer behavior literally overnight. We still saw a big increase in unemployment, but quick action by the federal government in the form of both expanded and extended unemployment benefits, as well as direct stimulus checks, more than offset any income losses. So while household expenditures did fall, down 2.7% for all households and 2.5% for married families with school-aged children, household incomes actually increased relative to 2019 by nearly 5% across all households. But before we go any further, I want to stress the differences between these averages we talk about and your personal experience. Whenever the major media shares data points from these government sources, they often talk about a single number, usually the average or median data point for the entire country. I find it always helpful to frame this data with some perspective around the demographics behind it. I know we often think of ourselves and those around us as the norm or average, when in fact we are biased by our immediate environment. That's also why I find it helpful to share this data beyond single data points, breaking it down across varying different demographic categories, so you can find the bucket that most looks like your own household. To put some of the data in perspective for you, The median household falls in the $50,000 to $70,000 income bucket, which has an average after-tax income for a household of $58,115. 
Households are categorized by the highest educational attainment level of anyone in the household. 75% of households have completed some college, but fewer than half are actually college graduates. Racially, households are categorized by the race of the reference person or the person responding to the survey. A person can also designate whether they are of Hispanic origin, which is something separate from race. Of the surveyed households, more than two-thirds of households are white, not Hispanic, and 14% of households indicate they are of Hispanic origin. Racially, that 14% breaks down as 96% white and 4% black. Last but far from least, and the biggest takeaway for family finance moms, remember that married households with children, which makes up the majority of my audience, don't represent the majority of households in America. They are only 15% of households with children under 18, or 23% if we include those with children over 18. I highlight these demographic breakdowns only to give you perspective. How often do we talk about averages or medians and think the numbers sound off or lower than we expect? It's because we think we are average when we are not. Married households, especially those with children, have income far higher than the average of all households, but we also have higher expenditures. Now, before we move on to how households spent their money in the average family budget, I want to highlight just how much incomes were aided by federal benefits in 2020. All household types, every single one, no matter the demographic breakdown, saw higher income than they otherwise would have in 2020, with many households seeing a boost of as much as two to $4,000. Only two demographic groups across all breakdowns saw after-tax income decline in 2020 relative to 2019. They were households earning $200,000 or more and married households with the oldest child under six, which is likely driven by someone having to stay home to handle children in the absence of childcare. Particularly for married households with young children, significant expansion in public assistance programs and unemployment, as well as direct stimulus payments, added nearly $3,000 to household income. These benefits continued and were expanded even further this year in 2021, with more stimulus checks paid out as well as the advance payment of the expanded child tax credit that began this summer. One of the key questions outstanding in the economic recovery is whether family budgets can stand on their own as these federal benefits come to an end as we head into 2022. So just how did the average family budget break down in 2020? With higher after-tax incomes, the biggest change was higher savings rates for almost all household types relative to 2019. But by far, housing remains the largest expense category for all household types, followed by transportation, retirement savings, and food. For a detailed breakdown across all categories, be sure to check out the link in today's show notes. Now, how did 2020 spending change for the average family budget? While we know the average household in 2020 saw higher pre-tax income, largely thanks to direct stimulus payments and unemployment benefits, what households spent still declined. Families with children reduced spending less than the average household overall and in different areas. 
the average family budget made bigger cutbacks on discretionary categories like apparel, which was down nearly 30% versus just down 24% for the average household overall. They also cut back on food, down almost 12%, largely from eating out less, and entertainment, which was down 12.6%. However, the average family budget spent more relative to 2019 on transportation, which was specifically driven by the purchase of new or new-to-them vehicles. If we dig into some of the subcategories for the average family budget, we can see some even more dramatic year-over-year changes. For married families with school-aged children, spending cuts in 2020 were largest on public transportation, which includes travel, which got cut by more than 60%. Entertainment fees and services, like going to the movies, museums, or shows, was cut by nearly 45%. Eating out was down over 35%. Apparel by nearly 30%. Gas for cars by nearly 25%. Spending on personal care products and services like hair and nail salon visits were down 17%. Household operations, which includes costs for things like daycare, babysitters, and preschools, was down by almost 9%. Now on the flip side, the average family budget with school-aged children actually had categories where they spent more. They spent 6% more on food at home, considering they cut eating out by a third. They spent 10% more on durable goods for the home, things like household furnishings, appliances, and equipment. They spent 10.5% more on medical supplies and over 25% on buying new or new-to-them vehicles. And the biggest year-over-year change, a nearly 60% increase in spending on toys, hobbies, and playground equipment. Basically, we were buying the kids anything they wanted just to stay sane while trapped at home with them all day, every day. One question I often get asked when it comes to family budgets is how much of your income you should spend on housing. So I dug into the details of the Consumer Expenditure Survey to see both what goes into housing expenses and what percentage of income it represents for varying households. A couple of things to keep in mind as we talk about this data. One, the average household is made up of a percentage of renters and a percentage of homeowners that varies by household type. And two, the Consumer Expenditure Survey separates out mortgage interest from mortgage principal payment. Principal payment is reported separately outside of expenditures as part of other financial information. I would use the categories from the Consumer Expenditure Survey as a guide for all the expenses to plan for your mortgage, property taxes, maintenance, repairs, insurance, utilities. But be sure to use the housing plus the mortgage principal number, which I've broken out in the show notes, um, in the link in the show notes, as the best estimate for overall cost. What does this tell you? It tells you the average family budget spends 28 to 30% of their income after taxes on housing. But last, remember this. The average family budget isn't in the best shape financially. So be sure to have enough set aside for long-term savings goals. You may want to undershoot that target when you're looking at what you personally spend for housing. Another interesting takeaway from the 2020 data also shows up outside of expenditures, but in the other household financial information section. Families spent a smaller percentage of their incomes, resulting in higher implied savings rates. So... 
how come average household net worths declined? Net worth is the sum of the value of all of your assets less the sum of all of your liabilities or what you owe. It's a measure of your actual wealth. If savings rates are up, that should increase assets. And we did see an 18.7% increase in average family assets. However, net worth also takes into account your liabilities or your debts, your mortgage, anything else that you owe. While assets were rising, both through increased savings rates and likely home value appreciation as well, liabilities rose faster. This is likely due to a series of factors, including things like forbearances on student loans and mortgages, credit card use as families likely used credit while saving cash to protect against the uncertain economic future, as well as higher mortgage balances as home prices appreciated and interest rates dropped. A first-glance takeaway might lead many to believe the average family budget weathered 2020 well, with lower expenditures, higher incomes, and higher savings rates. But bigger picture, from an overall financial perspective, most family households with children actually lost net worth in 2020, which isn't a sustainable trend long-term for a healthy consumer and economy. For graphical depictions of all the data points discussed in today's podcast and to download an easy-to-read and print PDF version of the average family budget broken down by household type, income level, education level, and race, be sure to check out the link in today's show notes. That's it for this week's episode of Finance Explained. This week in the markets, we'll continue to watch the Evergrande situation as well as the progress in Congress on the House's spending bill. On the economic front, we will see data on the housing market, including housing starts and existing home sales for August, as well as hear from the Fed following its latest FOMC meeting. Stay tuned for an update on all of that, its impact on the markets and your personal finances, and next week's deep dive into student loans. What's the latest on forgiveness? How did this become the next financial bubble? And more. Have questions about the economy or your personal finances? Submit a question for the Finance Explained podcast. Look for the link in the show notes anytime and I'll address it on one of our weekly episodes. As always, I so appreciate your support. It is your questions, weekly listening, sharing with friends, and especially your honest and thoughtful reviews that help make Finance Explained possible. So that's it for this week's episode of Finance Explained by Family Finance Mom. I hope each week to build and expand your financial literacy, help you understand not only the week's headlines, but how they relate to you, and also you can make better financial decisions for yourself, your family, and your futures. 